This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All voters should feel confident that the voting process will be easy, they'll have a good experience, that their vote's going to matter, will be counted appropriately. And when we lose that, we create uncertainty in the process that serves the goals of our adversaries. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We've talked a lot about the ongoing attacks on both the right to vote and most importantly, to have that vote counted. And we are currently fighting for the future of democracy, as listeners of this podcast know, and to make sure our democracy has a future. And the front lines of that fight is the ongoing battle to ensure that people can vote and that when someone votes, that vote is counted and used to determine the outcome of the election. And that's why I'm excited to welcome back a great friend of Politicology, David Becker. David is the executive director and the founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. He is a CBS News contributor and was a senior trial attorney at the Department of Justice in their Civil Rights Division. David, it is so good to see you, and thank you for making the time again today. Oh, my pleasure, Ron. It's so great to be back with you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's now zoom out and turn our attention to federal laws, yeah? Earlier in February, the Freedom to Vote Act failed in the Senate. And while Democrats on the Hill aren't willing to say the bill is dead, its prospects aren't looking good. But um, one of the things we've been hyper-focused on over the last year has been um, the election subversion laws being passed at the state level. Um, uh, What are the provisions that were included in the bill that could possibly have helped ensure election integrity? So first of all, there there were... were Three bills, and sometimes they morphed a little bit, that were considered in the last year. One was for the People Act. It's important to note that that, that bill was largely drafted um, in uh, you know 2018 and 2019 and didn't really address the things we'd seen in 2020. Um, it was a very large bill, about 900 pages long, with dozens of changes to election policy. Um, the Freedom to Vote Act was labeled a compromise bill. Um, I think it was, I think it was a sincere attempt to compromise on the part of the Democrats that wrote it, but it, 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 it wasn't, there wasn't actually a bipartisan effort to, to come up with it. And it was still a very long bill. It was about 735 pages, pages long. Um, and it had a few more, it had a few provisions, things like protecting election officials and stuff were in there. Um, similar with the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which uh, the first time it had been introduced was in the last Congress prior to the 2020 election. Um, it grew, it grew bigger. Um, it went beyond what um, it, 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 one of the primary things it was designed to do was to restore the preclearance provisions called Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that had been struck down by the Supreme Court in 2013 
which you and I have talked about. We'll link to that episode or uh, people can go check it out on the feed. That's, we talk a lot about preclearance and redistricting and that's important background. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that, but, but the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act was broader than that. It did more things than that. And there were other things about protections. It did, you know, none of these acts did anything with regard to the Electoral Count Act. Um, and uh, most importantly, there were good things in, in these bills, things that I liked personally, things that I think election officials liked, um, whether all of them were good, whether they were too big or too much, um, a lot of the things that were attempted were, 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 were going to, were, were supposed to be helpful. were going to be helpful to some degree, but they never, none of these bills ever had 50 votes in the Senate at any point in time. Um, and especially given that right now we're in a crisis. I mean, I, 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 Ron, we've talked a lot. I, I tend to actually be pretty optimistic. I tend to, I tend to think very highly of American democracy. I'm as worried and concerned as I've ever been about American democracy. And I, I worry, especially as a father, where, where, where American democracy is going to be in the next few years. Um, and these bills really probably didn't adequately address that crisis. I think we're in triage, which is not to say, look, when you're in triage, when you're in the emergency room and you're flatlining, the important thing is to get you out of the emergency room. It's not the time to be discussing diet and exercise regimen, right? Well, let, let's worry about that in the next coming years. But right now, let's make sure our democracy survives this crisis. And so um, I think one positive thing that may have come from the failure of these bills to pass, which, as we discussed, was a foregone conclusion, whether you agree with it or not, it's just yeah, factually speaking. That's, just, it that's where we are. Um, is that it has now brought, particularly in the Senate, Republicans and Democrats together to talk about targeted ways they can address the crisis. And of course, this might start with the Electoral Count Act, which, um, which, is, which does need to be revised. I mean, yeah. it, 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 up, it, it's, it's, it withstood the pressure this past time, but that's largely due to the character and integrity of individuals like Mike Pence and Acting Attorney General Rosen and General Milley and others, right? Um, so, so I think that's a starting point. It's not an ending point, but it's a good, right. it's, it's a good thing that the sides are talking. Okay, well, let's. Well, since you brought up the Electoral Count Act, I wanted to ask you about that because this is a this is a it, it to the extent that Congress has the constitutional authority to address at all some of the holes that we have in in the process. Uh, the Electoral Count Act seems to be the only thing that they can do something about, and it might actually be helpful um, for our listeners. Earlier in January. Uh, Senator Schumer, the majority leader, said that reforming the Electoral Count Act of 1887 was unacceptably insufficient. Um, and I think he called it a distraction. But after the other bills, as we've just mentioned, have failed, um, there, there's been a little bit more movement on it. Schumer hasn't quashed talks uh, with a bipartisan group of legislators who are you know, talking about possible reforms. Can you just uh, help our listeners understand what the Electoral Count Act actually is the, and the role it had in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And, and if, it, if, if reforming it can help, um, what, is, what is the linchpin? What is the reform that, that would actually, you know, shore this up? I, I think, so first of all, I, I'm, I'm not a historian. I'll do my best to kind of go back and explain what the Electoral Conduct is. It hasn't always existed. It, it, it came out of, as a result of the 1876 uh, presidential election, which was disputed. Um, there were... Um, uh, states uh, in the former Confederacy, where there were different slates of electors, there was questions about disenfranchisement of particularly African American voters in some of those states, and um, in an effort to prevent that from occurring again, eleven years later, the Electoral Count Act of 1887 was passed, 
and it's and and it seek to enshrine a process which made probably made a lot of sense 150 years ago, um, whereby it set up uh, deadlines for for the electors to be delivered to the national archives, a way to define you know what electors were valid, and a way to resolve disputes in Congress that may relate to the slates of electors, and that and and so um, if there was a legitimate dispute. It would it required an objection from both uh, both houses. Yeah, and, and this is important because in a, in a bit I'm going to ask you about those fraudulent slates of electors that were that were that were you know the that effort was counting on the loophole presented in the Electoral Count Act. So that's why I, I want to set this up for that reason. That's right. It it tried to um, it tried to establish a. Um, uh, it tried to establish a process. It tried again, like most of the things that are done well. And again, we have to recognize this was done in the late 1800s. Um, it, it's trying to reduce the amount of chaos and uncertainty. It's trying to say you got to do this, and if you can't do this, then you move to this process, and then you move to this process, and that's what it does. And and the final process in the Electoral Count Act is if someone doesn't get a majority of votes in the in the Electoral College, that it goes to the House of Representatives. And the the winner of the presidential race is the one that gets the majority of House delegations. Um, uh, so it's not just a straight vote of the members of the House. You'd have to get 20, 26 House delegations uh, when there are 50 states. Um, so that's the Electoral Count Act. One important thing about the Electoral Count Act and its relationship to the Constitution, it, it's intended that the joint session of Congress be a ceremony. It's not a new election. It was never meant to be an election. It is really opening up the ballots and just saying, I got six here, add six to the total for this candidate. It's just counting them up. I, I've said this before. It's most akin to the Academy Awards show. You, you know, you're not voting on best picture there. You're just opening up the envelope and find out who won. The, the winner is already established. Um, it's, it's even more transparent than that because we already know the winner because all of the electoral slates have been delivered to the National Archives. We know that to be the case. It is not an opportunity, or it's not supposed to be an opportunity, for members of Congress to um, question election laws that existed in states that they might disagree with prior to the election. It's not an opportunity for them, certainly, to replace the will of voters in states not their own with their own will. Um, and, and of course, President Tr then President Trump, former President Trump, um, it's really clear now, thanks to the hard work of the January 6th select, select Committee in the House, we're starting to see that there is a really coordinated effort to undermine the Electoral Count Act and the ceremonial nature of January 6th and to create enough chaos and confusion um, with things like fraudulent alternate slates of electors um, with things like pressure on Mike Pence, telling him he had power that no the U.S. Constitution had never granted a vice president, that, they, that a vice president could somehow say, I don't like the way the election came out, so I'm going to throw it over to a friendly House of Representatives. Um, this, is, this, is, this goes against every fiber in the document that sits in the National Archives, the U.S. Constitution. And yet this was what was attempted with, thi with things, you know, and there were several aspects of this. Like I said, the, thre the threats on Mike Pence the draft executive order that was going to get the military to seize voting machines in a blatant attempt at, to, at a minimum, try to delay the inevitable of, of Trump having to leave office. Even though the Constitution is not vague at all, if a, if a 
if a if a president if if a sitting president does not have an electoral majority at the end of his term, he leaves. I mean, we would have seen President Nancy Pelosi at that point in time if he had been successful. Um, efforts to, I mean, they were even coordinating efforts to harass election officials in the state. We know that from a document from Bernard Carrick. The fraudulent slates of electors is something that we only learned about relatively recently. And uh, and that seems to have been a coordinated effort, as you mentioned, um, on the part of some Republican state officials from Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Arizona, Wisconsin, Nevada, New Mexico. And I recently talked with former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin um, about the investigation into the origins of those slates of electors and and the prosecution that may result. Um, the you know I I wonder just as an aside you know if if Mike Pence had actually gone through with what they wanted him to do, it, it's not an understatement that we would have found ourselves in an unprecedented constitutional crisis, right? Oh, there's no question, and and likely if they had been successful, think about what states who had been by the way, every effort to to send these alternate electors by the yeah. way this was not just disenfranchising biden voters in those states this was disenfranchising all voters in those that was not the result in those states this was a, this was an effort to say the election is null and void we're not counting any votes and so it it would have i shudder to think at what voters who felt disenfranchised regardless of who they voted for uh, might have done in, the, in our highly divided environment. And there are, um, you know, be, uh, you know a, a prosecutor would know more about this than I would, but there are a lot of bad facts for the individuals that engaged in this conspiracy. I mean, the, the fact that at least two states did not say they were duly elected, they were very clear in Pennsylvania and Georgia to say, this is a just-in-case document, we're just filing it to be careful in case there is some kind of dispute later on, even though all the lawsuits had already wended their way through the courts and, and it resulted in, in clear, um, clear rulings. Um, the other states, that's not the case. They, they claim to be duly certified and elected as electors for the presidency, and they were not. And the other fact that's really tough for these folks is that it appears that in every case, there were several individuals who said, no, this is this is uh, this is going too far. I will not, even though I was I was scheduled to be an elector if Donald Trump won this state, I will not sign on to this document. So every one of these has a replacement aspect of it. So there are witnesses to what happened who obviously knew that this was inherently undemocratic and they wanted no part of it. And kudos to them, by the way. Okay, counsel, I am going somewhere with this line of questioning. <laughs> so <laughs> I bring all of this up because all of these attempts to uh, to 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 send alternative fraudulent slates of electors and get Mike Pence to uh, to to replace these electors all rests upon the big lie. The idea that he was going to use a false pretext of election fraud or you know create doubt and uncertainty around the results of these elections in order to justify the pretext for in order to create pretext for doing this. Now back to the Electoral Count Act. Reforming it does what? prevent that opportunity, the perceived opportunity from even, you know, coming up again? Yeah, the short answer is we'll see because people are in discussions about what it would do. But I think the primary areas that it, that it should focus on and likely will focus on is one new, to further enshrine the ceremonial nature of this, uh, of, of the joint session. Um, you know, the, the vice president who presides over the joint session is, is not king for a day. They're more like the host of the Oscars or an MC, right? They are, <laughs> they are literally presiding and, and, and ensuring that the process proceeds. 
there may be legitimate reasons to object to a slate of electors. Uh, if there were dual slates of electors that appeared to both be properly certified or where there's a question about that, Hawaii 1960 is such an example where there was some dispute. Now, that, didn't, that wasn't dispositive in the outcome of the election, but um, there are cases where that could happen. It could also happen that there is ongoing litigation or something else that prevented a state from getting its electors in on time. That's hypothetical. It hasn't happened in a long, long time. But if that happened, that'd be a legitimate reason. And there also be uh, uh, there's also a question which we've seen even in recent times of of an occasional faithless elector. In other words, an elector who is pledged to a certain candidate choosing to cast their ballot for someone else. Um, Another open question uh, is, it's not well-defined in the current ECA, is what's the denominator? What are we measuring the majority? If you, if you exclude a state's electoral votes, does that change the total? Or do you still need the original 270? Um, and uh, I think the, the answer probably should be you still need the original 270. You can't change the total as President Trump tried to do. It seemed like they were actively looking to change it so, so that he would have a 232 to 222 electoral vote margin, even though he didn't come close to the 270 needed. Um, but even then, lastly, trying to trying to clarify how objections are resolved, maybe increase the threshold for majorities in the chambers to be required to ensure that they're bipartisan. So if there's a look, if there's a legitimate issue, Congress is the appropriate authority. But most of these issues are not legitimate because of the security and integrity of our election processes that we've built over time. And so um, it's very, very unlikely. And if it does, um, and, and if an objection is to be sustained, it should probably be a very high threshold at this point. Right. Okay. Uh, now, one of the recurring themes that we've been touching on over the last couple of months has been federalism. It keeps coming up on the show. And I wonder if you, you know, could just, um, you know, set the record straight for our listeners who want you know, one big centralized fix to everything, all these problems. Why can't Democrats who control both houses just, you know, put an end to this? Uh, and, you know, maybe just like, let's do away with that idea once and for all. What are the limits to what Congress can decide about how states conduct elections? <laughs> so first of all, I'll just note, I mean, um, you know, adherence to federalism seems to stop when uh, states of the federal government are doing something that you don't like. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, people might have very different views on federalism, whether a state wants to outlaw abortion or I install much stricter environmental and climate regulations. Um, uh, but both relate to federalism and there are appropriate roles for the federal government, appropriate roles for the states. Now, in elections specifically, and, and this is often misstated by conservatives, which is a, a little bit unusual, um, elections generally are reserved to the states, but the elections clause gives the federal government a great deal of power to regulate the time, place, and manner of elections, and in particular, federal elections. And this power has been repeatedly used throughout history and successfully um, upheld in the courts, the most notable being the Voting Rights Act. Um, the, uh, you know, the Voting Rights Act was a remarkable imposition of federal authority on the states, uh, especially the preclearance provisions, which existed for um, 50 years and which required states to affirmatively make the case that their cha any changes to election policy were not discriminatory. They had to meet that burden of proof. And it was necessary. It was upheld by the Supreme Courts up until 2013. And it was necessary because of ongoing discrimination that was evading federal review. And so it's absolutely appropriate in some cases to create standards, to create um, uh, 
kind of kind of uniform understanding of election policies. And this is I think it's also particularly true from the perspective of the voter. I mean, our society in the United States has never been more mobile. The, the you know, 100 years ago, the likelihood that you were going to settle down with your family very close to where you grew up was much higher than it is today. And to to and it's hard to navigate the network of different election policies and procedures and equipment for uh, for voters. And so it's understandable that there might be some need for um, for national standards and, and an understanding about those. On the other hand, um, the federal government is not well situated to manage elections for 160 million people and different places have different ways they like to vote. I mean, the challenges in Alaska are a lot different than the challenges in Florida. And the election officials in those states know them best. And in fact, one of the, as I've mentioned before, one of the things we've seen from the states is that a lot of the innovations that we now rely upon that we think are really good, online voter registration, mail voting, early voting, uh, things like vote centers where anyone in the county can go somewhere they want to vote and they don't have to find one particular place. Those came from the states, both Republicans and Democrats. And so finding a, a, a happy balance between creating some uniform understanding about what a federal election will look like and what your rights might be, while at the same time giving states the freedom to experiment in ways that bring greater election integrity and, and better election access for eligible voters, I think is important. And, and we're still trying to find that balance. I mean, I think the Presidential Commission on Election Administration, which I mentioned, was, was an attempt to kind of advise on that. Right. Okay. So I should clarify our doomsday scenario, the one that I, you know, think about and have, you know, talked about a lot is that the party controlling a state legislature doesn't like the way people voted and decides there's enough cover to say there was fraud and then decide the state legislature is going to say, you know, which slate of electors gets to vote in the electoral college. And, uh, you know, is, is, and, and. I, I do this and encourage people to pay more attention to what's going on in their states, at their state legislatures. Um, and so is there any way to ensure that votes actually count and aren't a mere suggestion, uh, as Biden put it, at the at the federal level? I, I think there is. And, and um, you know, I, I have actually much worse doomsday scenarios, so please don't invite me to a okay. party. I will, I will Oh, God. Me. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, but. No, I do think it would be helpful to establish, to, to create some more certainty. The, the, the honest truth is election officials from both parties, they don't want to receive the call from President Trump that Secretary Raffensperger did in Georgia. They don't want to be intimidated or pressured to change this. They, you know, most of the people in the legislatures of both parties, most election officials, they like to have rules that are very clear that bind them. And I think we can do more to, I call them the guardrails of democracy. We can do more to strengthen those guardrails of democracy by making clear what the certification process is for states in federal elections at a minimum that make sure that the transparent uh, vote counts at the unofficially at the local and county level are made available and aggregated all transparently. So, so if we can see, if we see a problem that we can, um, we can fix it um, and allow for one particular avenue to resolve disputes. And that avenue should be the courts. It is okay. not parlor. <laughs> you know, it is, it, 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 <laughs> I mean, you, you, what you see from the losing candidate is as they've gotten, as, as every piece of evidence they've presented is just shown to be completely deficient and made up, as every expert they've relied upon is a charlatan and exposed. They have gone to social media to make their case 
and just repeat it over and over and over again, even as judges appointed by Trump himself have said, this is garbage, get out of my courtroom. And so it would be good to make clear that there is a, a path for legitimate review of problems in an election. There should be such a review, Florida 2000 being a notable possibility. And that should probably go through the federal courts. And maybe that could even be an expedited path for review. We want that expedited, maybe a three-judge court going to the Supreme Court. And whatever you think about the courts, whatever you think about particular judges, whatever, um, it is true that the court system held up. The judiciary held up during the 2020 election cycle. And there needs to be a way to resolve legitimate disputes that uh, under the rules of evidence, under the law as applied, and and that should be expedited so that in the case of a presidential election, which has very firm deadlines, you know, you have to get right. your electoral college votes in by the middle of December and the joint session has to meet in the beginning of January and the inauguration happens on January 20th. For Congress and other federal, for those federal elections, there's actually a little more flexibility. It's been, it, it has happened that there have been disputes over elections. Probably most famous recently was the Coleman Franken Minnesota Senate race in 2008, which was a very narrow margin and wasn't resolved until well into the spring of the, of 2009. And that's okay. The constitution allows for that. Um, but, but, but to create a clear path that if you, if a losing candidate chooses not to pursue that path or loses on that path, that is the end of it. I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about confidence in elections. Right before we started recording, you tweeted a thread about how Beijing and Moscow have been trying to diminish voter confidence for decades, uh, but now domestic actors are doing their work for them. Um, This also reminds me of some survey research that you highlighted in a document back in November, I believe, about what people believe about the security of elections as you as you increase geography up from the, from the very local level, whether or not you believe your vote will be counted at, at, in your community and then in your county, state, right, region. As you, as you scale up, people lose confidence that the election is going to be legitimate. Um, they, they have a high confidence at the local level and then they have very little confidence at the, at the federal level. So I'd love for you to speak to that a little bit and how we're seeing the rhetoric around the 2020 election and the new voting laws change how people view elections? So historically, what we would see in a normal kind of election cycle is um, the, the side that favored the losing candidate is going to see a slight dip in voter confidence. And the side that saw that, that supported the winning candidate is going to see a slight increase in voter confidence. But overall, voter confidence of the electorate would remain the same. And it was usually very high because, as you noted, every single poll that asked people about their local voting experience People generally have a really good voting experience. They, they, you know, hardly anyone waits for more than a half an hour to vote, especially now. People have more choices than ever before. More people have access to mail voting and early voting than ever before. Um, the voter rolls are much more accurate. So the pr- chance you're going to have a problem when you show up at the polls because your information doesn't match is much lower than ever before. So voters tend to really, really um, have confidence in their local election officials. But as losing candidates, and this is a relatively new thing. It's really come about because of recent efforts, even after he won in 2016 by President Trump, um, of casting doubt on, on elections. Um, the, the election deniers have, have leveraged the fact that people don't know how elections are run everywhere else. And so they've, they've increased doubt about election officials in other counties and other states. I mean, the best example of this is the really 
outrageous lawsuit that the attorney general of Texas tried to bring in December before the directly before the Supreme Court in December of 2020, which argued that. Can you imagine the attorney general of Texas, who's theoretically someone who believes in states' rights, arguing that other states' electoral votes should be excluded because he didn't like the rules in those states? Um, And the Supreme Court did what it should have done with that, which is to toss it in the circular file as soon as it arrived and say, you have no remedy here and no standing. Um, But the the idea that has been leveraged by election deniers, by anti-democratic forces, and that echoes a lot of what autocracies, our adversaries around the world are saying, which is that um, you can't trust your fellow citizens. You just can't trust them. Your enemies are in your country. They're not, they're not here in China or in Russia. Your enemies live across the street from you. And um, once you start believing that, you can believe you, you can start rationalizing some pretty despicable behavior. You can start rationalizing making death threats on public servants. You can start rationalizing uh, attacking the Capitol and uh, assaulting police officers. Um, and even, you know, a, a, in kind of a, a lesser um, uh, effect of this, but it's still very important, is that you have the political parties actually ending up using messaging that de- tends to depress voter turnout, their own voter turnout. Uh, the best example of this was the Georgia Senate runoffs in January of 2021. Those voters had been told over and over and over again, elections are rigged, your votes don't matter. And sure enough, we saw disproportionate reduction in turnout in Republican precincts than we did in Democratic precincts. And it resulted in two Democratic victories in Georgia. And similarly, we see messages about how hard it is to vote in Georgia. And and let's be clear, the Georgia law was not good, but it's still relatively easy to vote in Georgia. Georgia is a pretty good state for election administration. Um, But we just saw a poll this week that indicated 40 percent of black voters believe it's going to be really hard to vote in Georgia. Um, That's that's not good for anybody. I don't care what political party you're in. All voters should feel confident that the voting process will be easy. They'll have a good experience, that their vote's going to matter, will be counted appropriately. And when we lose that, we 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 create uncertainty in the process that serves the serves the goals of our adversaries. And that they know how and when to vote and that they're going to be able to. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's really, you know, in political campaigns, one of the most effective ways to, you know, make sure people do vote is not by asking them, hey, do you plan to vote? Uh, and getting them to say yes, but actually asking them, hey, when and where do you plan to vote? And, and how do you plan to vote? Right. Do you have a plan? Um, because y- you, you have them sort of forecast their imagination into the future when they're actually going to do it. And then they follow through, right? And, and the, the increasing complexity, uh, or at least the complexity of messaging, I think, absolutely has an impact. Um, and so I, I, I wonder if you could speak to that. And the, the, the communication around so many new laws and bills that still haven't been passed, getting passed and lead up to a midterm election, um, I think there's going to be a lot of confusion around that. And, and there are so many moving pieces. I mean, Wisconsin is a good example of this. Um, you know, they have an election coming up on February 15th. Um, a couple of weeks ago, a judge ruled that ballot drop boxes couldn't be used. A couple of days ago, an appeals court blocked that order. Um, and, and now Republicans are asking the state Supreme Court to overturn the appellate court. And an average voter can't be expected to follow all of this stuff. And, uh, and so I, uh, I, I wonder how you're thinking about the communication of the the time, place, and manner that you voter can can you know uh, avail yourself of 
really the only tool at your disposal to influence how this country and your community and your state is governed. Yeah, this is a huge point. I mean, just this morning, um, uh, a Pennsylvania lower court uh, ruled that the relatively new laws allowing for no excuse mail voting are unconstitutional according to the Pennsylvania state constitution. That that's going to be appealed to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. But you can imagine if you're um, if if you're a voter in Pennsylvania in 2018, you couldn't vote by mail. In 2020, you might have thought you had to vote by mail, and you could. And now in 2022, you don't know what you're going to be able to do. Uh, right. So you know this is and for most voters, there's a couple of things. There are a couple of big principles we need to understand. Um, in a four-year period, there is only one time where more than half of all eligible voters show up to vote. That is a presidential general election. For most voters in all other elections, the default is not to vote. Most people are not regular voters. The percentage of people who will vote in a midterm primary, if you get a third of all eligible voters voting, you've done a really good job. And remember, that's usually split between a Democratic and Republican party. So you're getting maybe a sixth of all voters in each one of those. In a midterm general election, we had all-time record, uh, not all-time, but last century record turnout in a midterm election in 2018. That was barely 50% of the eligible voter population. Um, in 2014, we saw the lowest turnout in a midterm election than we'd seen in a century, and that was around 36%, you know, almost a third. <clears throat> um, so, I mean, this the default already for most eligible voters is, I'm going to maybe vote once every four years. So if you throw in all of these variables, you throw in maybe their own side telling them that fraud is rampant and elections are rigged and your vote's not going to matter anyway, or you get someone telling them that voting is going to be really hard to do. You're going to have to wait in a long line when you get to the end. There are going to be people who are yelling and shouting at you in that line there. When you get to the front, they might tell you you're not registered to vote. I mean, if so, if those kinds of messages are 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 reaching you as a voter, even in presidential elections, but especially not, you're going to, it's easy to fall back on the default saying, why bother? And then you throw in this idea that the rules are constantly changing. It's really hard to navigate them. You know, I, this, this is my job, Ron. I mean, I do this all the time. I follow this stuff. Um, but m for most people, they don't think about elections all the time. They think about them very rarely, maybe, maybe once every four years, once every two years, you know, um, and and to, for, to if they perceive that there is this informational barrier, that they just have to figure out how to navigate the process, um, that can be really damaging to voter confidence and voter participation. And it affects both parties. I think this is a really important point. There are there are two myths about elections that are that happen to be agreed to by both parties as matters of faith. One is that they can tinker with election policy to permanently change turnout. That's just false. There is no evidence that policies like mail voting or same-day registration or um, anything else have, have a long-term effect to boost turnout. And there's no evidence that voter ID um, uh, restriction on drop boxes, et cetera, have a long-term effect to reduce turnout. That doesn't mean they're good or bad. I happen to like a lot of the things that, that work well for voters and give them more choice. Um, but they, but if, if you're someone who, who thinks you're going to give your party more victories by suppressing the vote of the voters that you don't think are voting for you, you're probably going to be disappointed in, in the policy choices you make. But the second big myth is that high turnout always benefits Democrats. And that is 100% false. 
High turnout always benefits democracy. I think it's always good when more voters show up. But the highest turnouts in Florida history and Texas history were 2020. And, and Republicans saw some of their great, Ohio as well, Republicans saw some of their largest victories that they've seen in any kind of recent time there. Florida saw its largest victory for a presidential candidate at the top of the ballot, um, at least a Republican since 2004 in 2020. It was, a, it was a very large victory, much larger than, his victory, than Trump's victory in 2016. And that was with the higher turnout. So, um, you know, we've, we've got We've got these myths working against us. We've got these, you know, these barriers that might be perceived, especially by infrequent voters working against us. And it's going to be a continued challenge for us to kind of um, help voters over that informational barrier. Okay. One more uh, broad topic. And and um, we, we, we got it at some of this uh, earlier uh, in the episode, but I want to talk briefly about the secretaries of state and the races coming up um, because there's going to be a lot of attention maybe more attention than ever on secretary of state races in 2022. Um, there are, there are 27, uh, secretaries of state on the ballot, including, uh, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Ohio, Wisconsin, crucial, uh, battleground states. Can you give an overview of the actual power secretaries of state have over elections? Um, how candidates who believe the 2020 election was stolen, for example, can use that power to shape elections moving forward? How, uh, maybe I'm getting into some territory of your other doomed, doomsday scenarios. I don't know, but but how are you thinking about those races and the candidates, you know, who are committed to ensuring fair elections where votes are counted shape elections, even with these newer election subversion laws? So the first response is the response I always love to get and everyone lo- hates to receive, which is this, this varies greatly by state. Um, and um, you, ra- you can range from states where the Secretary of State has a significant amount of power, uh, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada, certainly among them, California. Um, then you can kind of in the middle is, is secretaries that are um, largely are, are appointed, um, usually by the governor. That's true in Pennsylvania, Florida, and Texas. And they have significantly less power because they are appointees of the governor and really subject to what the governor wants to do. And then there are secretaries of state that actually don't have anything to do with elections, like Wisconsin. The secretary of state's office there has nothing to do with elections. There's a Wisconsin election commission there that that deals with those things. But in most of these states, certainly Georgia, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada, um, a secretary of state um, probably doesn't have the power to single-handedly change the outcome of an election probably cannot declare a loser the winner. But they do a few things. They set standards and assist local election officials who have a lot of the power at the local level. And those standards can have major impacts. And by the way, almost all of the work that's been done by both parties has been really positive on that front. You know, what we saw in 2020 was so many secretaries of state working with their local election officials saying, how can we how can we navigate the pandemic? How can we make sure that this works for you? You know, sometimes they do things that some don't like. You know, the secretaries of state in um, and, and secretary of state in, in Ohio uh, had that ruling you mentioned earlier about the the one drop box per county that was litigated. The rule of law uh, resulted in a in a ruling that said yes, he's right. Only one per county. There are people who don't like that, but the rule of law was. Held, de- held held sway there. That was good. Um, even if you don't like the ultimate result. In Texas, the governor did the same thing. Um, so they have some power in that regard. I don't think they can really overturn elections. What a what an election denier in that role could could do, though, 
And as we've said, there are people openly campaigning on that in states like Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, and, and Georgia. And, and what they could do is creates, again, I, I hate to use these terms too much, but so much chaos and confusion and do it from a position of power under color of law that it would create a vacuum whereby unscrupulous individuals, people who have uh, less integrity than, say, a Secretary Raffensperger in Georgia did, could use that opportunity to try to um, cast doubt on the outcome. And even the casting of doubt could be really dangerous. All, all you need to wonder is if, um, if someone like um, uh, Jody Heiss were sitting in the Secretary of State's office rather than Brad Raffensperger, when he got a call on January 2nd after a presidential election that he had lost by five digits, and Trump had said, find me the 11,780 votes that would give me a victory, one, what would Heiss have done? And two, would we even know about that effort in intimidation? And that worries me. That's not necessarily, my doomsday scenarios get very, very dark. So um, you'll have to forgive me on that. that. But that is the beginning of the doomsday scenarios. Um, and it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's chilling to think about it. Okay. I'm, I, 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 don't, I don't need any more, um, you know, fear in my, <laughs> in my <laughs> life today. I think that's enough for one day. But the, uh, it's, that, it's that chaos and confusion then that creates the, the backdrop for, you know, state legislatures attempting to take things into their own hands. And, and, and that's the part of this, I think, at least when it comes to secretaries of state races, that is, that is the most important because the way you put it was using the, the authority of law or something like that, the authority of their office, right. To create the, the color. Yeah. Under, working under color of law is, is under the usual of law, legal term. Right. You know, it's where, where people who, who have authority abuse that authority right. to, to, right. to somehow work against the people who, who elected them and who they serve. And, and we've seen this in rare, look, the election system held up. We've got to, we've got to acknowledge that. And whether you agree with everything they've done or not, or whether you agree with them on policy, people like Mike Pence, people like acting attorney general Rosen, people like general Milley, people like Liz Cheney, they did what we would hope anyone would do in those circumstances. Um, same with the, the election officials, but you know, we could get to the point where um, we have an election official who is unwilling to do that. And we've never gotten there before. I mean, let's, I, I, in, in at least modern American history, we don't have an example of an election official saying, my side lost. Now, how can I um, cheat the system to try to, to try to make sure my, the person I supported actually takes office despite the will of voters? Okay. And that is now clear that that is, that is what is potentially at stake in some of these states, in some of these races with the candidates that are running. I should also say, this doesn't mean that all the Republicans are like that, right? This, right. There are a lot of really good Republican candidates and Republican secretaries of state, just like there are a lot of good Democratic candidates and Democratic secretaries of state. There is just a particular group who has been campaigning openly, lying to their voters about election security. Really, targeting them for disinformation really i mean this is a this is a con game these people are marks for these people they're trying to keep them angry and donating so that they can get rich and they can gain political power and i have a lot of sympathy for the people that they're lying to because it's hard to be to be inundated in an environment where all you're hearing is lies and when you're hearing lies and you're not getting the other side the, the truth is not getting through it's really easy to start um 
believing the worst. Okay, David, you have been exceedingly generous with your time and we, we, we always love having you back. Before I let you go, where can everybody find you, follow your work, support your work? You're doing heroic work, <laughs> David. That, that, that's very, very kind. I, I'll, um, I have been busier than ever, um, and uh, election officials need support more than ever. Uh, feel free to check out our work on electioninnovation.org. It's our main website. Uh, we, we send out a newsletter every two weeks with a lot of information in it. People can sign up for the newsletter. There's also, uh, we have a, a separate website for the Election Official Legal Defense Network, which, as I mentioned, is EOLDN as in network.org. Um, and all the information on EOLDN can be found there. And um, uh, for those that watch cable news, I'm often on CBS and CNN and things like that. So look for me there. Great. And on Twitter? On Twitter, I'm at, at Becker David J, initial J. And uh, the Center for Election Innovation and Research is at, at Election Innov, I N N O V. Um, and you can find us, us both on Twitter. And I'm, um, I wouldn't say I'm a prolific tweeter. I, 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 I just don't have the time for that. But I, but I, but I do tweet pretty often. And this, you know, just today, I've, there have been several things that have happened on, in election administration that I've tweeted about. So hopefully folks will follow me there. Okay, terrific. And I know, I mean, some of my, some of, some of my favorite political journalists think very highly of you and have mentioned you on, on the, John Dickerson is one of them, uh, has mentioned your work, um, repeatedly. So, uh, people can donate. Yes. There's a donate button. We appreciate that. Okay. We'd love people to be part of our work. Um, it, any amount, a dollar, $10 doesn't matter. Um, feel free and sign up for our newsletter because we really do want to engage the community and get, get people, you know, the, the broader the community of, of those that really respect professional administrators, that realize this is cross-partisan, that realize how important this is for, our, for a sustainable democracy is, is really important. And we're working every day towards that end. Excellent. David, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ron. It's great seeing you. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.